first, we talk about Q1 budget scenarios, finances of our province laid out by BC Finance Minister Carol James yesterday. The $12.5 billion deficit described as staggering, but not without hope. The search for the path to recovery at the center of this forecast. To talk through how our economy looks from his view as BC leader of the official opposition, we welcome BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson to the program. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thanks for having me. What's your take on uh, this staggering yet uh, not without hope? Um, what, what was it called? It, it was, it's a scenario more than a forecast. Yeah, these are extraordinary times. We all know that. You just had to go down the streets of Vancouver or any other part of British Columbia in the month of April or May and see the closed-up stores to realize that things were way out of normal. And the concern we have now, of course, is that we're four months into this pandemic scenario $12.5 billion deficit so far, and it really is not sustainable. So we can't carry on like this. The federal government has put out that it's got now got a trillion-dollar debt, and we know that there are hundreds of thousands of people in our province who are dependent on the federal SERB payments, which can't go on forever. So all of us have to look forward to what's the plan in September. Will kids be back in school Uh, Will there be work programs for students? Will there be retraining programs? These are things we're calling for. And unfortunately, what we're seeing from the NDP so far is they're saying, no, no, we're just going to carry on the same priorities and the same budget we had in February. And all of us look at each other over here and say, but that makes no sense at all. What's the plan, Premier? What's the plan from the education minister? And we get just nothing. So can you give us a little bit of a debrief on what the priorities were prior to the pandemic for those who may be not as involved or as engaged as, as you or, or certainly us at CKNW might be on, on what the priorities were and how they continue to be that priority even in, as you explained, this, this new normal, this really odd reality in this pandemic? Yeah, let's take um, two, uh, higher education and tourism. So higher education, there are about 430,000 students in the system in British Columbia. They all went home in March. Some of them were able to complete their terms and their programs online. A lot of them did not. And now they're in the summertime with 30% unemployment and online learning for the fall, which a bunch of them will opt out of uh, for understandable reasons. But if they go looking for work, they're going to have a very difficult time. And there's no change planned for the advanced education budget of $2 billion a year. Nothing. So we say, for goodness sake, ramp up the online side of things to the best of your ability. And isn't it time to start talking about a work experience program for students? You know, when I was um, just at the end of high school, I got a summer job where the federal government paid half the wages and the, the farmer paid the other half of the wages because it was an economic slowdown at the time. We're going to need something like that for this huge pool of young people who are looking forward to a pretty bleak fall and winter because it's a choice between doing your classes online, which isn't very satisfying if you're in nursing or welding, and also the prospect of if they go to the workforce, it's going to be very difficult to find a job. Where is government in this? And so far, they're nowhere. Another example, tourism. You know, we all know that British Columbia's borders are essentially closed, the outside world in the USA. That's going to carry on probably for the rest of the year. This tourism season for the international tourism is a wipeout. 
And so the industry is suffering badly, 130,000 people with very poor prospects. You know, I talk to people in the bear viewing industry. They've just shut down for the year. There's no work. These back country wilderness lodges, they've all mostly just shut down completely because they can't fill them up with Canadians. And even the Canadians east of the Alberta border are reluctant to come. So it's British Columbians. So we need to completely rejig our tourism platform so the industry can survive to the post-COVID era. What we don't need is thousands of bankruptcies this fall where these people just give up in a pool of tears and walk away. So how do we stave off those bankruptcies? What is a, a solution to this, even a, even a step in a direction to help those businesses? Because it seems as we stare down possibly, you know, a year or more of this new reality, there, there doesn't appear to be a solution to the tourism numbers that, that are halted by way of a closed to non-essential um, traffic at the border and, and flights being put in a position or travelers being put in a position where they must quarantine for 14 days, regardless of where they come from. Very good point. And let's just take one example, talking to the woman from the bear bearing industry. What they've got to do, of course, is um, refund all the deposits they took. So they're in the hole now. They spent a mm. bunch of money getting set up for the summer and then had to return all the deposits. So they're going to need some kind of loan program over the winter just to survive at all. They're driving down their costs. And she mentioned they were paying com- commercial rents in four different locations because they have to have storage. They have to have a lodge in the backcountry. They have to have an office where they're based. So some kind of commercial rent support for the tourism industry would be an attractive thing. And, you know, you've just got to think, how do we get them to reduce their costs and then support them with the costs they can't avoid and come up with a revenue plan for 2021? Because 2020, it's just survival mode. You can't blame them for that. And so maybe it's time to say to the tourism industry, you know, we've got to get the hotel tax off your back for three months to give you a chance to stay alive. We've got to get PST off your backs to give you a chance to stay alive. You know, PST is an easy one to just say we're going to stop collecting it. Instead, the NDP have said, no, no, we're still going to collect it, except you're going to pay it as a big lump sum payment at the end of September. And you can bet your bottom dollar there are going to be thousands of small businesses, especially in tourism, who at the end of September and say, I can't pay. There's nothing. We're walking away. We can't continue to plow our savings into this. Yeah, the looming tax debt uh, does have many people very, very nervous. I want to ask you about one more thing. I actually wrote a column for the orca.ca on this today um, because you were talking about post-secondary education and the need for support of young people who, like the job market for uh, the youth in British Columbia is absolutely decimated. And as you mentioned, many uh, collecting the CERB, which uh, doesn't help uh, stimulate that job market. Uh, but what of the parents who have kids who cannot stay home alone and staring down the possibility of, of only a partial return to school? We'll hear more about that from the education minister later this month. We were told yesterday in a release. But what about parents who, who don't even have the option of child care, never mind affordable child care? How do those parents uh, get the support from government to go back to work to the jobs that they need so badly? Yeah, this is a major issue. On Monday, I was on a, a Zoom call with eight mothers in Maple Ridge, all of whom are working, all of whom are struggling. One of them is on commission, so her income has been very volatile. And if she's got two kids kicking around at home and trying to make a living, some of it has to be at a social distance face-to-face. Some of it's on the phone, some of it's on Zoom. It makes it extremely difficult and stressful for those people. She's a single mom. 
And for the other mums on the call, it was all about give us certainty for the school year. So here's the, the scoop, Jody. They told us it would be August 20th before they would tell us what the plan was for September 1. And we said to them in the legislature Monday, that's not good enough. And they came back. It was actually last Wednesday. They came back on the spot and said, okay, okay, okay. We'll do it on August the 1st. We'll have a plan. And then yesterday we said in question period, but you've put this survey out for parents that you will have a a deadline for closure of the survey on July 31st. And you're going to announce the plan 12 hours later on August the 1st. So what's the survey for? And they were caught completely flat-footed. The premier turned around and glared at his education minister and said, what on earth are you doing? And he was completely flat-footed. They hadn't thought this through. So, you know, they've had four months to figure out what's happening in September. It's time for the Ministry of Education to come take some leadership role in this and stop fobbing it off to the school districts and tell us what the plan is. Because we've got 640,000 students in K-12 and that adds up to a million parents who are saying, what's the plan for my work week in September? I need to know to arrange childcare, to arrange my work share arrangements at work, to try and work from home if I can. To you know, If you're, like I said, a welder or a, a dental hygienist, you've got to start job sharing with somebody. You've got to figure that out. And you can't do it if you're told on August 20th. No, certainly you cannot. We need a plan A. Let's get back to business with the current uh, state of our phase three. We need a plan B that that is coupled with the possibility of that second wave. Obviously, government on uh, on all fronts, I think, agrees that science should dictate how this works. And Dr. Bonnie Henry certainly leading uh, us in terms of what is the safest for our kids. But that plan C, the backseat plan of what to do with the young kids, because luckily for me personally, my son is old enough to stay home solo. I can't imagine what it would be like to have one or two small children and a single parent trying to make ends meet during a pandemic with no option of affordable childcare. Well, and take this scenario, Jody, that has been neglected in the conversation the last four months. Kids with special needs. The parents need the support of the school system. They need the break of having their their child taken care of by professionals in the school system and getting an education. And I've never understood why special needs kids aren't entitled to five days a week in the classroom. You tell me why that's not the case. In a safe social distance classroom. Uh, Thank you so much. I could talk to you for an hour. Uh, glad to have unpacked some of this and get the conversation rolling. Always a pleasure to uh, spend some time with you, sir. Good, good. Keep well. That is and- Andrew Wilkinson, the leader of the opposition, BC Liberal Party. We're shifting gears here to talk Vancouver Park Board news. Yes, uh, amending bylaws to allow camping in Vancouver Parks. You heard it in Gord McDonald's news uh, just now. That's what was on the table the last two meetings. More than 12 hours and a final decision made Yeah, another big decision made by the Vancouver Park Board. Uh, What are the new rules about camping in Vancouver Parks? Well, let's bring in somebody who is certainly engaged in and in the know on this topic. John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, joining us on the line. Hey, John. Good morning, Cody. Can we uh, unpack this from sort of a a starting point? When was it first uh, suggested that these bylaws be amended? Well, it's, it was suggested um, some time ago, and, you know, the difficulty that I see with this is that in 2014, uh, we did have an encampment in Oppenheimer, and the park board did was successful in seeking an injunction and clearing the park. This new park board has taken a much different approach. The Green Cope Alliance has 
not wanted to move even after a GM's order in Oppenheimer Park. So they've really set a tone that this will be tolerated in parks. And, you know, a lot of uh, talk about the, the legal judgments of the 2009 judgment and then one at Abbotsford. But I believe that the park board should have actually um, move forward with injunction, and then if it did fail in the courts, then we would we would absolutely know. But I think we needed to push harder rather than just take the easy easy basically an easy road out and say we're going to change our rules um, without a clear um, um, message. I think from from the courts, and and now we've got the the Strathcona encampment, and this park board has said this won't even basically won't even touch that and we had a commissioner last night say under no circumstances uh commissioner giesberg of cope said under no circumstances would she ever approve an injunction to clear a park of campers so this is sending a very strong signal that this is all okay so i'm super confused john and i'm i'm thinking that our listener is along with me in in trying to figure out how amending bylaws to allow temporary camping in vancouver car- parks that does not impact encampments such as Strathcona or Crab Park or Oppenheimer Park and and Strathcona now we're learning as we heard in Gord McDonald's news there now 200 tents encroaching on the uh, sports uh, field and the baseball dime the tennis courts the things that are are there for communities certainly during a pandemic even more so uh, a, a valued space for those who live in the community with 200 tents in an encampment right. And last night, one of the speakers, uh, Veronica Butler, who uh, was representing the Sacred Fire at Camp KT, uh, said that there was a plan to actually dig up the um, center of the the running track, that whole center area, and plant um, indigenous plants and uh, and food in that area. And uh, have absolutely, the leader, Chrissy Breda, said absolutely they do not intend to uh, abide by this new bylaw at all. So the other thing is we don't have the resources to enforce this bylaw across the city. Uh, We only have the equivalent of 14 full-time rangers. That's if you consider the part-time positions as well. There's 240 parks and you've got shifts. You've only generally got probably six rangers on duty at any one time. There's no possibility they can enforce this bylaw. Um, so it, it's, um, it's a very difficult situation and I, and I think it's the wrong decision for Vancouver. I'm still caught up in the fact that we're talking about these encampments, these 200 tents at, in Strathcona, uh, ever growing. Um, we've discussed um, how uh, Oppenheimer Park got to the point of, of weapons and, and illicit drug use and a dangerous environment and even uh, injuries and nearby uh, deaths. It, it, this well, is we just... had, yeah, we had a death close by. We also had, um, you know, a woman uh, basically uh, raped and tortured in a tent, and and that was um, a terrible, terrible situation. Uh, we see now, um, you know, a lot of criminal activity with the chop shop there, and and you know, some of the commissioners will say, "Well, no, it's safe there. I take my, you know, I take my kids there, <laughs> whatever." And I, I think it's a, I think it's very, I think it's very naive, and. Um, you know, I, I don't think that should be the role of the park board to provide um, housing for people. It's um, it's uh, it's the role of the federal and provincial government. And I, I think by wading into this, we're making a big mistake.
You just read my mind because as you were saying all of that uh, about what these encampments represent, I'm like, how is this on the table at a park board meeting? What did the 91 speakers over the 12 hours of meetings have to say? What was the general message from those who, who well, were speaking? There was, a lot of, there was a lot of, I would say, activists who had signed up to speak and were very supportive of the encampments. Uh, there's no question about that. But by and large, a lot of the letters that we got and emails we got were very concerned about the escalation and crime and and a lot of phone calls that I got around that. So you had both sides of it. There's a lot of compassion in Vancouver, and I understand yes. that. Nobody likes to see anybody living in conditions like that. And that's one of the, you know, the, the reasons that all the uh, BC Housing came in and offered housing to all of the campers that had moved from um, Oppenheimer. Uh, Oppenheimer and actually... Yeah. Some of those refused, and then they then they did a camp uh, on the beside uh, Crab Park, which was the port uh, yeah. lands, and and then the port was a the port got an injunction pretty quick within about three weeks. So the port took action, and the park board did not. Right, because that was private property. The the port that was private property, property. was That's correct. right. Yeah. Okay, so uh, stand by, John. Uh, we're going to open up the phone lines in the next segment, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell if you want to uh, chime in on this. Either side of it, as you said, a very compassionate city. And I think, John, it's important to note that uh, in Vancouver, we, we're exhausted by our homeless, uh, homelessness issues here. Uh, nobody should be living as rough as so many Vancouverites are in the year... 2020 never mind during a pandemic uh who should when we when we identify in your opinion who should be managing this uh other than the park board uh, as you said with so few bylaw officers and a, and a group of people who have full-time jobs that sit on the park board uh right uh, and 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 try and ha- have these conversations is this a municipal issue or is it a provincial issue or is it a federal issue how do we get relief for those who are struggling below the poverty line so mightily here in and specifically in Vancouver. Yeah. And I, well, I think we need to separate things a little bit too, though. People talk about homelessness and there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of components within that. So you have people who are, you know, just homeless because of financial or whatever, but you've also got a lot of people that have serious mental health issues. You have people with serious addiction issues and I think the level of care and treatment of those people is badly lacking in, you know, in the province and generally in, in the country. And you see it time and time again where somebody will be in an overdose situation, they're, they're admitted to hospital, and then as soon as they're stabilized, they're just, you know, they're released back There's out into to the go. community. There is yeah. no continuum of care to, to help these people. And that's one of the things I think that is often missing from the discussion. And, uh, but it's not a park board discussion it's not it's not a, it's not for the park board to deal with Kim, we're talking about park board the big park board meeting a uh, second of two it went uh, late into the night it's been 12 hours of discussion amending bylaws to allow camping in vancouver parks we're with vancouver park board commissioner john cooper on the line for a few more minutes and the phone lines are open uh definitely got some callers lined up we'll be getting to you in just a moment 604 280 9898 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell if you want to get in on the conversation. Uh, John, I wanted to keep you uh, just so we could reiterate in a really clean fashion what the new bylaw amendments actually allow people to do in Vancouver parks. Well, there are areas set aside 
um, with within parks. It's not particularly set aside, but there's some rules around. So you can't be within 25 meters of a playground and that sort of thing. So what it works out to is approximately 25% of the park area across the city will be available because obviously you're not allowed to, to to put a tent in a in a garden bed or you know there's there's some pretty reasonable uh, uh, rules around it and it from that point of view but basically you've got a situation where you have two basically you know 2,000 2,500 homeless uh, folks in Vancouver who have access to about 25 percent of the park space across the city and uh, with you know 650,000 residents um, that's a fair bit of space for a small group and I think that um, and people really you know value their parks and want to spend time in their parks so I have some concerns about that as well. So people who uh, are looking for a place to uh, camp overnight can go at what, is there a particular time that they're allowed to enter the park and then uh, that they must tear down and at, exit? They're allowed to set up at, de- at dusk and they are supposed to be uh, moving at seven in the morning, but there's a one hour grace period, I believe. Um, the thing is the, the ability for us to um, enforce this or monitor it is very, very limited with the, with the with the staff that we have, so it's um, it's opened it up um, in a big way, and that's a big concern as well. So you and your fellow uh, NPA commissioner uh, Trisha Barker voted against this, but also one COPE member voted against as well, correct? Yeah, one COPE member voted against it, and, but for different reasons. Uh, uh, commissioner Irwin voted against it because he he didn't like the idea of of having to move people in the morning, and his he wanted it to be much more liberal than it already was. So. Um, different reasons, but uh, that was the effect. So you had uh, the three green um, commissioners voted for it, as did, uh, as did one COPE commissioner. But uh, that's, how it, that's how it played out last night after midnight. Thank you very much for your time today. Appreciate you sort of helping us unpack what is a very complex uh, park board issue. Uh, now moving to amended bylaws. Thank you, John Cooper. Thank you, Judy. That's John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, taking your calls 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. Aiden, you're up first. Welcome to the show. What do you think of this? Hi there. Um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, talk about the Park Force decision. I think it's, uh, you know, it's a very sad decision. I think the parks are meant for everyone, um, not just for a few people. And, um, you know, children use the parks and, you know, we live close by to Stracona and we used to take our kids there for an ice cream and then go to the park and there's no way we're going to do that anymore. It just seems to keep moving them around. Um, I think these park members, you know, have the need to want to wanna have people camp. Um, they should consider, you know, definitely other options. Maybe using city property to uh, uh, give ca- campers an option you know or the what? homeless community an option. They could use their backyards if they like, but, uh, you know, using the parks that everybody uses is not the ideal thing to do. What do you find you, you use? The- you're in Strathcona, Aiden. What is it like for you? Can you give us sort of a paint us a little no. bit of a picture of what it's like? You know, I'm not exactly right there. I'm a couple blocks away. Um, it's yeah. it's sad. You know, it's sad, and, and I feel for these people. I understand that they you know they have a homeless problem, but I think it's more than just a homeless problem. I think the reality is is there's an addiction problem there, and there's uh, other mental issues that are at play, not just a homeless problem. Um, and that's that's going to take a toll in that area. And and it's sad because that area was you know changing and becoming a nicer area. It was it was never a great area, uh, and now it's it was becoming a nicer area. And now you have um, a big 
problem there, and it's, it's going to take um, you know a lot of planning to move those people out of there. And, and what happens next? They go to the next closest park. You know that that seems to be what what's been going on. Right, moving the issues and and mm-hmm. not helping the actual people that need the support. Aiden, thank you very much for your phone call. Appreciate it. Uh, Ken, welcome to the show. What do you think on this topic? I I find it really amusing because they know that these people are going to camp there permanently. This is, this is, this is giving them permission to park permanently. There's no way these people are going to get up in the morning and say, geez, I think I have to leave. No, it's not going to happen. And the parks board knows that there's no way that you can enforce it. Um, you know, in the morning, if somebody goes and says, people, you've got to leave, they're going to say, no, I'm not going. What are you going to do about it? Well, they're not going to arrest them. What are they going to do? They're going to get them a ticket. So basically, what the parks board did is, is, is say, "Well, you can camp in the in the um, in the parks, but this idea that it's going to be overnight, uh, they know that's not going to work." And I think you're just pulling the wool over people's eyes. And I, I'm getting disgusted with the, uh, the, the the type of things that this parks board has the ability to trust on on citizens of Vancouver. It's unbelievable that they can do that. You know, I, I a lot of people perhaps haven't driven by Oppenheimer Park or walked around there. They see it on the news. They see it in the newspaper. But a lot of times I've driven down there, and I, I'm just disgusted. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I, if people haven't actually seen it, they should go and see these places because it, you, you, you can't describe it until you get there and walk around and go, oh, my God, like, what does society come to that that's the best we can do for people is give them the tell them to, put a tent in the park. A lot of them are mentally ill, they're drug addicted, they need help, but this is not going to help the situation. It's, I don't see what, that it's going to have any impact whatsoever. It's going to make it worse, actually. Thank you very much for the phone call, Ken. You uh, make a lot of sense right there. The humanity that is at play when we're talking about this and we're bantering about uh, parks and here and there and what, when you see people struggling to the degree that so many thousands are here, Right in our city, where we live, more must be done to support the root of the problems that are seeing people live in poverty. I'm going to squeeze in, David, I've only got like 30 seconds here, but I I think I know where you're going. It's about motorhomes, right? Uh, Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we're going to open this up for everybody, then why can't I take my motorhome, which I have? I'm a taxpayer. I pay my taxes. I have a job. Why can't I take my family down to Spanish Bank and, and sleep overnight down there and open up my slides and I'll be out by 7 in the morning. But, I mean, they're going to open it up for everybody else. Why shouldn't it be open up for us taxpayers that want to, maybe I just want to pitch my tent with my family in a, in a nice park by the beach. You know um, what, it, David, you, know, you make like a really like, good point. I got to leave it there because I'm up against the clock, but you make an absolute great point. It's the first thought that I had was why wouldn't everybody want to come and park their vehicle or camp on a Vancouver uh, beach or in a park, a beautiful space that is well kept. And and sure, everybody gone by eight. You know what? It's not unique. This is something I lived in Los Angeles for a brief period of time and Santa Monica Pier has a nightly dusk to dawn camp there and have for decades. So this is not unique to Vancouver. And I was perusing Twitter yesterday, coming up with concepts to have a conversation about here on the program. uh, And I found... Something really interesting. I came across a thread that was a live tweet sort of chronicling 
uh, Vancouver City Council's meeting on a rather controversial building and rezoning issue. On the table was a motion to allow a previously approved 16-story mixed housing and commercial building at the corner of West Broadway and Birch, which most locals know is the site that used to be the Denny's on West Broadway. Now, originally, that was approved at 16 stories. Uh, Developers now, with the Broadway subway line uh, coming inevitably. Uh, They want to build up higher, much higher, in fact. 28 stories is the ask now. Uh, The number of hours that have been spent on this single development, staff time, the debates, you'd think that we weren't in an affordability and housing crisis, not to mention a pandemic here in the city of Vancouver. Yesterday, the vote well, it went off the rails in a way that no one could have predicted. To to explain what he witnessed, we now welcome the author of that live t- tweet thread, Vancouver research lawyer Richard Waldkirch. Uh, thank you for being with us, Richard. Oh, it's actually Peter, Peter Waldkirch. Oh, sorry, uh, Peter. Oh, God. That is absolutely <laughs> my complete flub, Peter. Thank you. No I'm sorry. We, we've only met on social media, so here we go. I'll never forget your name now. Uh, my bad. So tell me what, what brought you to uh, this particular Vancouver City Council meeting and, and, and live tweeting it, and what did you witness, all of that? Oh, well, sure thing. Uh, well, so I'm a, I'm a Vancouver resident, and I'm a supporter of more housing in Vancouver. I strongly feel that every neighborhood in Vancouver should welcome more neighbors and that we should be stop, we should stop banning apartments across most of the city like we do now. So for me, this project is a no-brainer. It's a great project that will bring desperately needed rental homes and particularly moderate income rental homes to uh, a neighborhood that could really use them. And a vote against this would be a vote against the 53 moderate income rental homes that are part of this project. So I've been trying to help Abundant Housing Vancouver get support out for these homes. And so I started following city housing policy and politics pretty closely a couple of years ago and quickly saw that we have a pretty broken housing system. You know, I was shocked mm-hmm. to learn that apartments are banned on most on over 70% of Vancouver land. Now that land is reserved exclusively for detached homes, which is the most expensive and land-intensive form of housing there is. And pretty much any other form of housing, especially rental apartments, have to go through really lengthy and complicated rezoning processes. You know, um, this seems like a process designed to let people who are happy and have benefited from the status quo, which is mainly landowners and landlords, to try to veto new homes. And in my experience, these public hearings are extremely unrepresentative. Uh, We have a system that seems designed to make housing scarce and expensive for anyone who can't afford to buy a detached house in Vancouver. And as everybody knows, those are pretty expensive. Um, So I've been trying to help bring out awareness to this issue and what's going on at Council. And in terms of this particular project, I live in Fairview, pretty close, about four blocks away from this uh, proposed building. And to me, it's just an absolute, like I said, no-brainer. Broadway is the busiest bus corridor in Canada or the U.S. It's on an old Denny's, so there's no displacement of existing renters. It's right by a future SkyTrain station within walking distance to VGH. You know, as you mentioned, the pandemic, uh, we've heard a lot about how healthcare workers need more homes close to uh, close to VGH, which is a major employer of healthcare workers. I you think know, it's safe to say, the- uh, Peter, it's safe to say that we simply need more housing in affordable housing in Vancouver, full stop. So why did this tabled motion about approving this particular uh, development, uh, why did it go off the rails? Well, so I think a little bit of background is sort of uh, helpful on this one. So 
this was a lengthy public hearing process. That's sort of the culmination of a rezoning process that's already been going on for two years or something like this. And you noted that this was originally approved as a 16-floor building. And so I think it's important to sort of know what happened there. What happened was those 16 floors as originally approved would have been 100% pure market rents which, you know, any sort of supply, any more homes, I think is a good thing at this point in Vancouver. But there is, because there's a severe shortage of rental homes, rents are really high. So for this reason, several years ago, a previous council approved MERP, the Moderate Income Rental Housing Pilot Program. And the basic logic of that is we'll let you build a bigger building in exchange for about 20% of that being uh, for moderate income homes. And so this building was originally 16 floor, but then they resubmitted under MERP. And the building that came back was 28 floors, but including now 53 below market homes. Um, And so it's kind of a straight up vote here. If you reject this, we're going back to the pure market rents. So do we want affordable homes or not? And so this public hearing, there's sort of special rules around that. And basically, a councillor needs, if they miss part of the public hearing, they're required to review what they missed before they're allowed to vote on the pro, on, on the whatever is at issue. Motion, yeah. So yesterday was actually day three of the public hearing on this building after this lengthy rezoning process. And so yeah. what happened was Councillor Kirby Young had missed Friday's hearing, which was day two of the hearing. So what happens is the mayor at the beginning or whoever's chairing the meeting asks the councillors who missed part of the proceedings if they've reviewed the what they missed. And Councillor Kirby Young said no, she hadn't. And so because of that, she wouldn't be allowed to vote. And so this is an important project. And so mayor and the rest of council, uh, majority of the council at least, voted to adjourn the hearing for another week to give uh, Councillor Kirby Young uh, more time to review what she had missed so that she's able to participate in this important housing vote. So, but the interesting piece in reading your thread was that Councillor Kirby Young did not want to put off the boat, vote. She just was going to not vote. Yeah, well, I can't speak to Councillor Kirby Young's motivations, obviously. But what No, I no, no, I'm not asking you to do that. We actually invited Sarah Kirby Young, Councillor Kirby Young, to join us today. She's unable to do that because of work conflicts, and she's going to be with us tomorrow to talk through, uh, yeah. from her perspective, what happened. But in reading through your tweets, it was interesting to see the dynamic, how much time was spent on what to do about the vote and what would happen and who's in for postponing the vote and who's, who is not, what would happen to this motion and how, as you've uh, mentioned, Peter, how this years-long process, it just became even more arduous. Yeah, well, that's very typical and typical fashion for this council. It took them about an hour just to deal with this one issue, just to figure out how they're going to adjourn the meeting uh, to give Councillor Kirby Young more time to review the material. So even something relatively simple like that turned into a fairly uh, painful process involving them having to seek legal advice and so forth. So uh, nothing happens sort of quickly with this council, unfortunately. So I've got a question for you because of all of your knowledge with regard to wanting the affordable housing to be available in your backyard. You're the you're you're a yimby, not a nimby. Um, right. So how about is there is there any conversation about uh, looking at that original 16 story building and saying, how did that get approved without any housing for moderate or low income uh, residents rentals? Well, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on sort of their original submission at all, but I can say that building rental housing in Vancouver is tough. We went mm-hmm. for at least 30 years or so, we're basically zero 
rental, new rental housing was built from sort of the 70s until the late 2000s. Literally almost zero new rental housing was built. It's the economics of it are extremely tough. They're going to be out-competed rental houses by condos or by detached houses in almost every single case. So there needs to be some sort of incentive just to let any, even even market rentals, these have some sort of policy to support it. And so that's my understanding is that the original uh, the original um, 16th floor building was approved under a policy that was just designed to encourage some rental yeah. to be built. And then that was followed subsequently by MERP, which was sort of, a, it's still a pilot program. It still hasn't mm-hmm. been sort of officially um, adopted as a permanent policy. It's still just a pilot program that's uh, accepting up to 20, uh, I believe, um, publications across Percent. the city. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate you taking the, the time to uh, give us your perspective. I do enjoy following you on Twitter. For our listener, what's your Twitter handle? Oh, I'm at P. Waldkirch. That's at P. Waldkirch, W-A-L-D-K-I-R-C-H. And I do think council is important. Civic politics matters to our lives. And I definitely encourage people to pay attention because, uh, you know, an election is coming up in a couple of years. And I think people should be informed about what's going on so they can make an educated vote. I couldn't agree with you more, Peter, and I apologize again for getting your name wrong off the top because no, you no. are you are bringing message that I think our listener really needs to hear that that our in uh, every British Columbia needs to disengage from the politics that we have no control over or vote on and bring it back local. And uh, this Absolutely. is a great example of that. So I appreciate you taking the time out for us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Continuing our chat about a controversial building along West Broadway at Broadway and Birch. You know where the Denny's used to be? Anybody who's uh, been in and around Vancouver has to remember that longtime Denny's location. Uh, proposed there a 16-story building uh, wanting rezoning now from the city of Vancouver to build up to 28 stories and have a number of uh, affordable rental units be a part of this building. I wanted to bring in a good friend of the show, Michael Geller, who's an architect, planner, a developer, an educator, but also a blogger. And, and Michael, I'm glad you could join us today because you did blog specifically about this building, didn't you? I very much regret it, but I did. <laughs> Do tell us why. Well, because I am, as you noted, a, ba- a developer, an architect, and, you know, as a general rule, uh, it's not customary for developers to be criticizing projects from other developers. It's also probably not very wise for me to be challenging the city of Vancouver on some of its uh, recommendations and some of its financial analyses. But um, my father used to say, Jody, that we judge people by what they say and do and then expect others to judge us by our motives. And in this case, uh, my motives really were that I don't think this building should be approved at this time um, because uh, it's a very large building for the site. I agree with many of the surrounding neighbors who are concerned about it, but more importantly, I agree with a lot of respected planners who question whether the city be, should be approving this and other large projects, which essentially are offering higher density in the name of sustainability and affordability. <clears throat> so for, for our listener, I want to give the quote from your blog. You said, I am all in favor of developers trying to make money, and they should make money. But given all the legitimate concerns about the resulting building form, especially in the absence of the Broadway corridor plan, is it really in the public interest to allow this rezoning? I don't think so. I say let's stick with the earlier rezoning, which is the 16-story building, right? 
16 stories, but also when we talk about buildings, I think it's important not just talk about their height, but also talk about what we call FSR. It's the ratio mm-hmm. of the building to its site. If you want an analogy, when you talk about me, you could say I'm five foot eleven and a half, but I'm also 185 pounds. That gives you an, a measure of it. In this case, the previous project was approved at a seven floor space ratio, which is more than two times the permitted currently permitted ratio of three so and nobody really objected to that because it was going to produce rental housing rather than condos which i think most people wanted this so building interesting. is actually at 10 fsr over 10 fsr Bef- so it's very before large. you go there i i just want to grab that you the previous rezoning at the 16 floors did include rentals but not it was not it mar- was, that's right it, it is rental. in fact all rental um, right. i haven't studied the unit sizes or the rents but it would be all rental um and what we call market rental in other words what the rents would bear and in fact the developer agreed to pay two million dollars to the city in what we call development charges so that he could decide what the rent should be based on the market which was perfectly reasonable from his point of view Okay, go back to the FSR because I interrupted you. The bulk of this building, for people who don't understand FSR, someone explained it to me, and, and Michael, you can tell me if this is sort of in line. The, the FSR, when it's, when it's too high, it means like the edges of the building go all the way out to the extreme of the property line. You know, how a house, a monster home would gobble up the yard in any green space. Well, it's certainly, I mean, the city does have guidelines in terms of setbacks, and this building does comply with those. But what it does mean is on the lower floors, instead of having, say, a 6,000, 7,000 square foot floor, it has uh, nearly uh, just over 9,000 square foot. So on the lower floors, the building is fatter. On the upper Mm. floors, the building is generally consistent with other Vancouver buildings. But in order to get all of that additional density, the building has gone from 12 stories, which is the normal height for that area, to 28 stories. Which will stand out significantly on West Broadway. But some argue, Michael, that it is time for West Broadway to grow up literally with towers, as we see when we drive in from south of the city and we look over to Burnaby. And And I agree with that, by the way. I do agree that, in fact, the three FSR that was approved in the 80s, and I was around when it was done, it probably is appropriate to increase. In fact, it's essential because there is going to be transit along there. But my only Mm -hmm. point is, should we go from 12 stories to 28 stories now without knowing whether 28 stories should be the new normal Or maybe 18 stories or 22 stories should be the new normal. Now, some people would say, come on, why are you so worried about buildings sticking out? We have a housing crisis. And it is true we have a housing crisis. But anyone who takes a look at this building in detail, and I did as an architect, will note that it's very well designed. But in order to get those rents down, it's because the suites are tiny. And I'm willing to bet, Jody, that many of the people who fervently spoke in favor of this project, calling for the urgent need of more rental housing for modern income people, don't realize how tiny these apartments are and how Mm. tiny the balconies are. 
And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Indeed, for market rental, I think the units can be tiny. People have choice. But when you start providing housing for seniors or people who have less choice, then I think there's a greater obligation to ensure these units are livable. When I grew up, I was told the living room should be at least 12 feet wide. Many of the living rooms in this are eight feet wide. It'll be difficult to even get to the door leading to the balcony. Now you can say, well, surely that's just a detail. Well, if we're going to do this and create a building that is so objectionable to so many people, we should look at how livable and enjoyable it will be to be in. Especially when we are spending the amount of time at home that we currently are. Michael Geller, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for uh, informing and educating us on this project. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your interest. That is Michael Geller, architect, planner, developer, educator, and blogger. We're talking about West Broadway and Birch. Certainly not the last conversation to be had. Time to talk about back to school. I heard a back to school commercial. I looked at my son because we were driving in the car. Looked at my son and I was expecting the ugh that I'm used to from him. But no, he's actually chomping at the bit to get back to school as so many kids are, kids of all ages. My boy's 12. He's about to hit high school, hopefully, fingers crossed. Uh, luckily for me, he is 12 years old. And when I need to work, I can keep him uh, or leave him by himself. He's self-sufficient. He can manage it. I don't know what I'd do in a pandemic with small children. Uh, Childcare is not even an option most days uh, for the last four months anyway. It got me to thinking, what is the back to school plan B for parents? And are parents stressed out about the unknowns around what back to school might look like? I think it would be uh, expecting an awful lot to think that we are going back to typical all in, in class education for all ages, starting in just a couple short months, a month and a half for that matter. We are expecting an announcement from the education minister by the end of this month. Um, so we're looking forward to that. We had a great conversation with Terry Mooring, uh, the BC Teachers Federation president yesterday, where Terry sort of laid out the hard work that is going in to the planning for the fall. But we're not hearing a lot about the back to school plan B. So I wrote a column for the ORCA. Go to the orca.ca and you can read my back to school plan B column that sort of adds some voice to the exhausted parents that I know are out there uh, right now, just frantically trying to make ends meet and wonder how they're going to do the the kid juggle in the fall. And what happens if there's a second wave, a worse wave of COVID-19? There's a lot to unpack here. So I want to connect with somebody who's been on the other side of this, been a teacher, been in the classroom, knowing how much uh, being in class really means to kids of all ages, from the littles to the almost grads. Uh, Stephen Price is with us, West Vancouver teacher and education columnist, good friend of the program. Uh, thanks for being with us, Stephen. Thank you, Judy. So much I want to get to here. I think it may be the fact that, uh, you know, I, my mom was a single mom in the 70s with two small kids. We were not even close to the age of being able to stay home and be self-sufficient. I watched her stressfully try to navigate shift work uh, without uh, close family to help juggle. It would have been impossible without my grandparents and and my aunt and, and those who would step in. I, I worry for parents looking ahead to a pandemic uh, back to school that might involve both home education as well as in-class education. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, 
as a teacher, we often are, are thinking about the kids who are hardest to support, who have the, the greatest number of needs, and that could be a family situation, that could be just their own learning needs, and, and it was definitely a huge challenge in remote learning to try to get supports in place for, for students, whether it be just, you know, they, they don't have a parent at home um, because the parents are out working or, or they have special learning needs. Um, and the thing that really kind of um, resonates with me is, is Dr. Henry's, uh, you know, mantra now is, is be, be safe, be calm, be kind. And the, the piece that I focus on here is be kind. And so mm-hmm. the, the flip side of being kind and, and, and that invocation by public health officials that we need to have kindness for each other, the flip side is, is that we also need to seek out kindness. And so when we, uh, I, I think what I, what I take from, um, from my previous career, which was in university and why do students succeed or fail at university? Um, one of the big contributors to failing out of a university experience is not having connection to other people in the school and on the campus. The mm. same is true with parenting. So what you can do productively right now, because we don't have all the information, we hope that we'll be back in full time in the fall, uh, or at least the education ministry hopes that that's the case uh, and that the, the virus is is not spreading quickly enough that we need to be on remote learning. Um, what we can do is build our parent networks. And, and so that's, I think, what I would spend July doing if I was worried is just sort of touching base. Who also needs help? Are there ways that, that we can help each other as parents? Um, and that's true for me as a teacher and also a parent of a, of a grade uh, a son who's going into grade four this year. Wow, Stephen, that is such a great idea. That network of parents could really be vital this fall. I mean, fingers crossed, as you said, we we are so lucky to be in one of the best places on the planet with regard to where we are at uh, in this pandemic. Managing our community outbreak is the key here. We've heard Dr. Bonnie Henry say repeatedly, our provincial health, health officer is constantly pointing to us flattening and really uh, keeping our community, flattening the curve and keeping our community outbreaks uh, to zero, if not a, a, a sharp minimum. I mean, this this Kelowna outbreak has been uh, kind of a jolt for, for all of us. So, so the need to stay um, diligent in following these directives that are put in place so that we can have some semblance of normalcy in a return uh, to in-class learning come this fall. But what might it look like in those classrooms, Stephen, in your experience? I mean, we saw a little bit in in June, those, my son went back for four days in June and uh, he, you know, the physical distancing and, 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 and really how, uh, the kids arrived at school and the hand washing stations and and managed all of it well. It wasn't overtly um, unusual or scary for him in any way. He liked being back with his friends, but it does look different. And when only a portion of kids return to school, should that maybe be prioritized to those who have the highest needs or uh, are in the most precarious family situations? Is there a way to do that? Yeah, so even in June and, and through uh, even earlier than that, we had the... Um we had the, the schools for essential workers and for, for kids with, in some districts, for kids with needs. By June, it was, um, it was an option, or it should have been an option for any child who has an individualized education plan, which, which means they have a, 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 a defined uh, need for support um, mm. beyond what, is, um, what, what, what most students need. 
And so those students did actually have the option of coming back full-time. So in my own class, I had uh, three students who were attending basically full-time. Um, and, and so that's still in place. And, and one of the things that we need to communicate as, as schools, and we'll be communicating in the fall if we are on that sort of partial schedule, is, is what is available and, and making sure that parents are reaching out and, and, and asking if, if that is a possibility uh, for accommodation for full-time if we're on a, a, a divided schedule and if that's what your family needs. Um, definitely reach out to the school in, in, in August and see if that's a possibility for, for you. Um, that's great the other advice. Thing we're, yeah, the other thing we're doing just sort of in the classrooms is, is yeah, we are trying to kind of keep a, a physical distance. It'll be harder with, uh, with 30 instead of 15 for uh, an intermediate class or with 24 instead of 12 for a, a, a grade one, two, three class. Um, but we'll, you know, we'll do the best that we can as teachers within the context of, of the guidance we're getting from public health authorities. We're going to open up the phone lines to take your calls on this topic after uh, a quick pause. Uh, so 604-280-9898 or star 9898 if you want to chime in. Are you a worried parent or are you totally cool with it? You trust what's happening, you're fine with a balance of in-class and at-home or are you struggling because you don't have the tools necessary to learn from home? There's a lot of moving parts with regard to this conversation. So get in on it, 604-280-9898 or star 9898, uh, toll free on your cell. And Stephen, one more question for you, if I may. Uh, it, it piques my curiosity, given the fact that kids are not going to be running around and playing basketball in the gym. Could Could some of the um, spaces that are earmarked typically uh, for um, physical education or the music room or uh, the, the choir spot, whatever it is, could those be converted into classrooms to space things out a little bit more and, and add sort of more teachers to the mix so that there weren't as many kids in a classroom? Because it, it, the mandate will be to have that two meter distance, correct? Yeah, that's down to the to the province. Um, the province hasn't mandated a two meter distance with kids. Uh, the okay. public health authorities didn't didn't actually say that the children had to be two meters. We were to aim for that. Um, I think the challenge there is is a political question of of every classroom you add is essentially another sixty thousand dollars a year, um, and so so that's uh, and actually more than that. So. So that would be the question for the politicians to ask is, is there more money to support that distancing? And from what I understand, uh, we received uh, a release. We asked uh, for Education Minister Rob Fleming to join us, and uh, he was unavailable, but his office did uh, send us a very detailed release that there would be um, budget allocated to create safe spaces at school and also reiterating the fact that everything is contingent on the directives of our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry. So some fascinating notes to be pulled from that. Actually, I'll share those uh, after the break as well. But Stephen, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time uh, and and sort of giving us some perspective, some good tools that I love the idea of, of connecting and networking with your parent group so that if and when there might be an issue with childcare in the fall, you have have people to lean on uh, and have those peers to work with, you know, create a bubble because your kids are probably likely in that bubble already. And also to communicate directly with your individual public school uh, to find out uh, what is available should your needs be uh, that of, of requiring more in-class learning. So a couple of really good takeaways today, Stephen. Thank you for that. Thank you, Jody. Have a great day.
You too. That's Stephen Price, a West Vancouver teacher and education columnist. We're taking your calls on the other side here, uh, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. How are you feeling about back to school? Are you counting on it so you can get back to work? It is difficult for parents to plan and navigate. It's not that far off in the distance. And boy, there are a lot of people hoping for some semblance of normalcy in our back to school. But could that happen when there are great expectations of a second wave? 